morning, everyone. So I'm Meredith Ankaz. I'm the teaching pastor here at The Rock, and we are 17 days away from Christmas. 17 days. And now I know Santa Claus is coming to town in 17 days, and some of you are wondering which list you're on, you know, because there's two, two, and I have an inside connection. So I have the top 10 things that'll get you on the naughty list, and some of you need to make a course correction. So I'm, this is a favor to you. So Here's the, one, of the, one of the things that can get you on the, the naughty list. How you replace the toilet paper roll, okay? Anyone, this is like self-check here. Anyone who answered anything other than A, you are on the naughty list. You need to correct your behavior. Thank you, yes, all of my A people, you're out there. Okay, next one, the number two thing that's going to get you on the naughty list. If you are putting your dishes in the dishwasher and not rinsing them, right? And I know there are some of you looking at your spouse right now, your partner going, you, you are on the naughty list, right? So you got to start rinsing your dishes if you want to get on that nice list. Okay, next one, pen stealing. Some of you see a pen and you just can't help yourself, right? Like you, you have a stack. You have, some, you have some returning that you need to do. You know, most of them have a little logo on it or you've stolen it from a friend. Start pulling out your pens and seeing which ones don't belong to you. How about this one? Running the yellow light. And some of you, I, I have a spouse who is definitely on the naughty list because of this and you'll say, it was, it was orange, you know, right when I went through it. So if you see a yellow between now and Christmas, you better start stopping. You know, that means to stop. Okay, next one. You reply all to emails that you should not be replying all to. You reply all the group emails. Stop doing that. Santa is very upset about that. He is keeping score. Okay. Not returning your shopping cart. You're those people who put it right. You think it's so far away. I'll just put it right between these two spots. That's not going to bother anyone. It is definitely naughty list criteria. Okay. Next one. Not flossing. Santa cares about your dental hygiene. You have been ignoring your dentist's uh, advice. You need to start flossing. You have 17 days to pick up the habit of flossing. I heard it takes 21 days to get a habit, so you, you'll, you're well on your way. Okay, next one, you microwave smelly food in the office. And I have, to, I have to break it to you. If you microwaved fish in the office, there's no hope for you. You are just permanently on the naughty list. You can't get off it. Just go, go bananas then. This one. You put things that don't belong in the recycling in the recycling, and you put things that belong in the recycling in the trash. So pay attention to your trash habits over the next 17 days. And the last one, re-gifting. <laughs> you know who you are. Some of you, you have a stash where you're like, I don't want this thing. I'm going to just wrap it and give it to someone else. Santa knows when you are giving gifts away. And so some of you feel like, okay, I got time, I got 17 days, I can get my act together, and some of you are just resigned to your fate, and this is more your attitude, right? Dear Santa, I've been good all year, okay, most of the time, well, once in a while, okay, never mind, I'll just buy my own stuff, so, right? And here's the thing about Santa, it's kind of tough because he's keeping score, right? You better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why, he sees you when you're sleeping, which is kind of a creepy thing, right? But Santa's keeping score, and, and here's the problem. You don't know what your score is until Christmas morning, right? Like, do you have coal in your stocking or gifts in your stocking? You don't know, and so you have to always be on the lookout and always watching out. And you know what? This is fine when it comes to Christmas gifts, but often we start to think that God works the same way. 
right, that God is keeping score. There's a good list, there's a bad list, and you're not quite sure which one you're on, but you better watch out because God is going to get you if you don't do the right thing. Many of us think that life kind of works like the good place. If you've ever seen the good place, I've got a great clip about how they talk about the afterlife, the good and the bad place. And so some of us actually think that's the way the afterlife works, right? That really God's keeping score. And of course, it's, it's important to do good things and lead a good life and be kind and stay on the nice list and not get on the naughty list and all of that. But here's the problem with this. You better watch out mentality. You better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town. And you better watch out because God is keeping score is it's all motivated by fear, right? It's all saying, don't get on the bad list. Don't don't end up on God's bad side. And it makes us afraid. But here's the thing. Fear is not a great motivator. Sure, it's a good motivator if you want to curb something right away, you know, curb some bad behavior right away. But it actually doesn't change hearts and minds. And when we use fear as a motivator, what starts to happen is shame creeps in. And shame is more than you did something wrong. Shame starts to say you are wrong. Not just that you're on the bad list, but you are bad. You, at your core, are flawed. Brene Brown, who's a vulnerability and shame researcher, says this about shame. She says, shame corrodes the part of us that believes we can do better and be better. When we shame and label others, we take away their opportunity to grow and try on new behaviors. Shame is so painful for us because it is inextricably linked to the fear of being unlovable. See, Fear may stop us in the moment, but fear prevents us from growing and changing. Fear prevents us from actually doing the right thing for the right reason. And, what, and when shame creeps in, when we start to feel like you, you are bad, we, we actually can't change. It's not just that it makes you feel bad, and that's, and that's why you shouldn't use shame. It's that it's ineffective because what it starts to say is at your core, you are flawed. At your core, you actually can't be changed. There's something fundamentally wrong with you. And therefore, what you start to do is you hide bad behavior, but you don't actually feel like you're capable of changing. And so when we get into this you better watch out mentality, either with, with God or with life, we start to feel like, oh, someone's keeping score. And, and I, better, I better make sure that I behave the right way but something inside of me is fundamentally flawed. And here's the good news. As we look at our Christmas story today, we're going to see that when Jesus shows up, when grace comes to town, it's a whole lot different than when Santa Claus comes to town because God actually isn't keeping score. That's not our Christmas story. So we're going to go to the beginning, and you know, we're going to look at the Gospel of John today. And each Gospel is an account of the life of Jesus, the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Matthew and Luke both start off talking about the nat nativity story, you know, the birth of Jesus. And we hear about Mary and we hear about Joseph. But John talks about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus becoming human, God coming down to earth in a little bit different way. And so this is what John says about God becoming human. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness 
has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And so the word, that word, the word, is another way of referring to Jesus. And what John is saying is Jesus is God and has been God from the very beginning. Everything that we know, everything that we see, everything that was ever created was created in him, through him, by him. And this God, this light, was coming into the world to illuminate everything for us, to help us to understand who is God? What is God like? What, what does God think about us? What does God want for us? That we would be able to see the image of God clearly. And I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his, in his version of the message. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Right? God became flesh and blood and moved into our, our neighborhood. He made his home among us so we could understand the heart of God. That God isn't distant or far away. I always say, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God cares about, we go and we look at Jesus. We look at Jesus. And John continues, and he says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word glory means the magnificence of God. When we look at Jesus, we see the magnificence of God. And how do we see that? Because he is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. And grace, that word grace means the loving kindness of God, the favor, the goodwill of God. And that word truth means what is most real, what is certain, this absolute truth, God's ideal. And, and Andy Stanley says it well. He says, Jesus isn't a balance between grace and truth, between God's loving kindness and God's ideal. Jesus is the full embodiment of that. And this is how he says it. Jesus did not come to strike a balance between grace and truth. He brought the full measure of both. He didn't water down the law. He didn't put a condition on grace. In Jesus, we get as clear and as close a look as we will ever get of what grace and truth look like in an otherwise graceless world that has turned its back on truth. See, grace without truth looks like tolerance which feels good at first of like, it's you be you, your truth, you're good. But tolerance doesn't have a higher vision for people. It doesn't want more for people. It says, you're fine just the way you are. I like you just the way you are, and you just stay that way, right? So grace without truth is tolerance, but truth without grace is condemnation. It's this, where, and it makes people hide because it says, you're bad, everything you do is wrong. Here's the way that, the way that you're not getting it right. And Jesus is not grace or truth, or sometimes grace and sometimes truth. Jesus is grace and truth at the exact same time, which can feel like a contradiction. But this is, again, Andy Stanley says it like this. Grace doesn't dumb down sin to make it more palatable. Grace doesn't have to. The purpose of truth isn't to isolate people from God or from his people. As we follow Jesus through the Gospels, we find his acknowledging the full implications of sin and yet not condemning sinners. The only groups he consistently condemned were graceless religious people, those who misused truth to control through guilt, fear, and condemnation. See, when Jesus comes to town, he doesn't use fear to change us. It's not you better watch out. He uses freedom. He uses deliverance. And so let's look at what this grace and truth together looks like. Let's look at one of the stories where we see this most clearly. It's an unusual story to, to teach at Christmas time, but I think it's a great one. So it's in John 
7, 53 to 8, 11, it says this. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temples where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Okay, so let's break this story down a little bit. Because Jesus, he's at the temple, he's teaching a bunch of people, and suddenly the religious authorities come in with this woman who's just been caught in the act of adultery. It's not that they know that she's an adulterer. She's just been caught in the act, right? So she is exposed in every which way, right? She's scantily clothed, and she's exposed in her sin, and she's standing there, and she's terrified, and they say, well, this woman just got caught in the act of adultery. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? Moses says that we're supposed to stone her. What do you say? And we're told that they're using this as a trap because what they're trying to do is expose Jesus because they think Jesus is just, he's grace without truth. You know, he's just going around making everyone feel good. So he is, they assume like, oh, we've caught him right now. He's going to let her off the hook and it's all going to be exposed that he doesn't actually follow the law of Moses. He's a false teacher. He's no good. Or, or he's going to follow the law and then all of these people are following him because he just makes them feel good. They're just going to, they're going to cut ship. They're going to, they're going to abandon him because, you know, now he doesn't have mercy on them. And the other trick that they have for him is if he actually does enforce the law, right, and have her stoned, well, he's now going to be in opposition to Rome. Because remember, Israel is an occupied nation. And Roman law says you're not allowed to actually go and kill people. Only Rome can execute people. So they think we've got him. Perfect. We've trapped him. He's going to have to choose this or that. And either way, he's in trouble, right? No matter what he does. But what does Jesus do? He stoops down and starts writing in the sand. And now there's been a lot of hay written on, like, what did Jesus write? Nobody knows what Jesus wrote. If someone tells you, we know what Jesus wrote, we have no idea what Jesus wrote. But we do have a sense of why, why he started to write in the sand. The first reason would be to take attention off of this woman. Right? Because here's this woman who is shamed, who is afraid, and rather than everyone staring at her, he draws attention to them. But also, also it was common for Roman officials to write their verdict in the sand. So everyone is eyes on Jesus, trying to figure out what is he going to do. And the religious authorities just keep plastering him with questions. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do, Jesus? Come on, Jesus, tell us what you're going to do. And this is what Jesus does. And this is why I love Jesus, because he just, he flips it every time. And he stands up, and he looks at them, and he says, uh-huh, yep, you're right, that's the law. So, you know, um, let any one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Now, often when we hear this story, we think this is Jesus saying, well, 
you've made mistakes too. And so if you, you know, if any of you has never made a mistake, then walk away. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's doing something much bigger. Jesus is exposing what's really going on here because he's saying, oh, you want to go to the law? You want to live by, you better watch out. You want to keep score? Then let's keep score because I know how to keep score. Jesus is confronting the religious authorities in this, in this moment because he's holding everyone to the law. He says, if you want to go to the law, we can go to the law, but it applies to you too because here's the thing. She is guilty of breaking the law. She has broken one of the commandments, right? She is not supposed to be having an affair. And this is what the law says. If you are caught in the act of adultery, it says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So they're not wrong, right? This is what the law says. This lady's been caught. What are you going to do, Jesus? Right? So that's the law. But she's not the only one who's guilty of breaking the commandments here. Because all of her accusers are also breaking a commandment. Because the commandments say you cannot be a malicious witness. You cannot bear false testimony. And so he's saying right now, anyone who's involved in this situation who is not currently sinning, go ahead and throw a stone. Because he says, you want to go to the law? I know the law. You know the law. Let's go to the law. Because this is what the law says. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witness, witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil from among you. So they're not wrong, right? They know the law says you got to have more than one witness. They conveniently have two or three witnesses, right? And he says, you're right. If you want to go ahead and enact the law, go ahead and throw the first stone. That's the way this works. But there's a catch. There's a catch because the law says something else about being a malicious witness. It says this, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be, to be a malicious witness. So a malicious witness would be someone who either set up an evil situation, who is lying about a situation, or who is partnering with someone in an evil situation. And we are told right from the beginning that this is a trap, right? They've set this up. But we have hints that at, at the very least they're complicit. At the very least they've allowed something that shouldn't be happening to happen so that they can use it for their advantage. But we have hints that they might act, there might be more behind that. that. They actually might actively be behind this situation. And here are the hints. The first one is there's no man, right? Now, unless this guy, because they were caught in the act of adultery, right? So unless this guy is really, really, really fast and can outrun a whole group of people, it's a little bit suspicious that they only have the woman here, right? So there, there's already a hint that, like, this smells a little fishy. This doesn't seem right. And then, and then we're told they have to have multiple witnesses. They have to have multiple witnesses. And they just so happen to have multiple people who just so happen to stumble into this circumstance and witness what was going on. And they were able to bring this woman before Jesus because Jesus just so happened to be at the temple, right? It's all, there's a lot of smoke and Jesus is assuming there's some fire here, right? And so here's the problem. If you are a malicious witness, Jesus is saying, oh, if you are pure hearted and genuinely concerned and want to uphold the law of Moses, go for it. You are within your right to throw the first stone. But he knows the law, and they know the law. 
And if you are a malicious witness, if you've set something up, if you've been complicit in evil, if you are somehow bringing a situation about that is meant to trap someone, it doesn't go so well for you. This is what the law says about being a malicious witness. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then due to the false witness, as that witness intended to do to the other party. So Jesus isn't just saying, oh, we've all made mistakes, no big deal. Like, you know you've made mistakes too. Jesus is saying, oh, if you want to play by the rules of the law, then we can play by the rules of the law because I know the law and you know the law and we all know what's going on here. And so as soon as you throw a stone at her, you also are under the penalty of death because you are bringing false witness. You are a malicious witness. You are complicit. You have joined hands with evil to bring about a situation. And so Jesus is saying, we can play by the rules of you better watch out. Like, if that's how you want to keep score, we can keep score. But we keep score with everyone. You, too. And so what happens is Jesus doesn't say it outright, but he knows the law and the experts know the law. And so Jesus stoops down and starts writing in the sand again. He takes all the attention off of everyone else. And what do they do? They slowly slink away because they know exactly what this situation is. See, Jesus says, we can play that way. But remember, Andy Stanley said the only people that Jesus genuinely opposes are the graceless religious people, those who misuse truth to control through guilt, fear, and condemnation. And that's what's going on here. And they know it. And, but notice what Jesus doesn't do. Everyone in the situation is breaking commandments. They're all on the naughty list, right? They, they have all, they've all done what's wrong. And he doesn't turn to them and say, sinners, how dare you committing adultery, you bringing false witness, all of you are terrible and horrible. He doesn't do that. Jesus never uses fear and shame as a motivator. He certainly holds up a mirror to those who want to do that, but that's not what Jesus does. See, Jesus is full of grace and truth at the exact same time. So let's look at how this story ends again. You know, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And we can read this because sometimes, you know, when we hear the translation, it can sound kind of harsh where Jesus goes, woman, where is everyone? But actually the term that Jesus uses in that moment, woman, is a term of respect. And so here's this woman at her lowest moment, right? She was on the brink of being stoned to death. She's been caught in adultery. She's exposed to this whole crowd. And there's shame right there. And what does Jesus do in this moment? He speaks to her with dignity and respect. He doesn't pile on the shame. And there we see grace. I don't, I don't deem you worthy of punishment. Because he says to her, 
Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And that word condemn means to deem worthy of punishment. Has no one deemed you worthy of punishment? Then neither do I. In this moment, he says, I don't deem you worthy of punishment. I deem you of love and belonging. We see grace, but we see truth at the exact same time because he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, this is no big deal. Everybody stumbles. No, don't worry about it. He says, this is not worthy of you. There is, there is more for you. I want more for you than this. You are worthy of belonging and dignity, but live a life that is better. This is truth. And, and so Jesus, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to say, all of you are so terrible and I deem you all worthy of punishment. You're all on the naughty list and you better straighten up and get your act together and start doing better things. That's not what we're told. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. John says it like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to deem the world worthy of punishment, but to save the world through him, to rescue us, to deliver us, to make it possible for us to live a different way. Frederick Buechner says it like this, it is impossible to conceive how different things would have turned out if that birth had not happened whenever, wherever, however it did. For millions of people who have lived since, the birth of Jesus made possible not just a new way of understanding life, but a new way of living it. It is a truth that for 20 centuries, there have been untold numbers of men and women who in untold numbers of ways have been so grasped by the child who was born, so caught up in the message he taught and the life he lived, that they have found themselves profoundly changed by their relationship with him. See, Jesus comes to set us free. He doesn't use fear and shame and you better watch out as a motivator. He says, you are worth more. And when you enter into relationship with me, I make it possible for you to live differently. And so the message of the gospel is not you better watch out, but the message of Jesus is keep watch. Keep watch over your life because as people who receive grace and truth in our lives, as people who receive this love and belonging that comes from God, it should change the way we live. It should change the way we interact with the world and with one another. We should keep watch over our lives. Paul, one of our first Christian leaders, says it like this. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, bearing with one another in love. See, we are meant to look different in the world because of how Jesus treats us. Jesus' grace and truth should change us from the inside out. We are called to keep watch. And so let me give you an example from my own life of what this looks like. So who's a parent in the room? Who has a parent? Yep. Now you know that when things get quiet, it's not normally a good sign, right? Like you're reading a book, you're taking a nap, and you feel at peace, and then you go, 
oh no, something, something probably bad is going on in the other room, right? Okay, so you know this. And so Imogen, a few years ago, she went through this season of sneaking food. Some of you have had this where they sneak, they figure out like I can open the closet myself and take food out of it. And so it started where we had a babysitter and we, you know, poor, poor judgment, we let like a 12 year old watch our child for a night and that was not, not very wise. We came home and they had raided all of the chocolate in the house and eaten, eaten all of it. So like, you ate it all. Okay, great. We're not awesome parents. That was not a great, that was a parenting fail. So, and then that started like this, this, you know, um, habit of like sneaking all sorts of food. And it culminated in one Halloween. And if any, if any of you know me well, you know, I'm not a big Halloween fan. I don't, I don't like scary things. And I really don't think it's a good idea to give children lots and lots of candy. I think that's kind of a dumb thing that we do in society. But I'm a good parent, so I decided to let my child go trick-or-treating, right? I was like, I'm going to do this. We went trick-or-treating, but we had a plan. Steve and I are thinking, we're the most awesome parents on the face of the planet because we came up with a candy plan, and Imogen was able to pick out her, like, six pieces of candy, and she even decided, like, which one she was going to eat on which day, and we put the rest of it away. But here's the thing. We had separated out, because Imogen has a gluten allergy, so we'd separated all the gluten candy from the other candy, and we were planning on bringing all that gluten candy into the office. And we'd put the candy that she could eat away. Like, you know, those six, we'd put it away, because we were, we were like, yeah, we know how to do this. We didn't put the gluten candy away. Some of you know where this is going, right? We actually left it at the bottom of the stairs, because we were planning on bringing it in the office the next day. So the next morning, I, I had a gym uh, down in the basement, and almost every morning, Imogen was like a herd of elephants while I was working out, like coming down the stairs, and she'd bother me while I was working out. And that morning, I got through my whole workout. She didn't bother me. I thought, oh, man, we really tuckered her out, trick-or-treating. Like, again, feeling like I'm awesome. I'm such a great parent. So I come upstairs, and Steve's in the kitchen. And he's holding candy wrappers. And I'm like, something's not right because Steve is never up this early, and why would he have candy wrappers at, like, 5.45 in the morning? And he, I look at him, and go, what's going on? He goes, well... I heard some pitter-patter feet on the stairs, and I thought Imogen might be up. So I went in, and I checked in the bathroom, and there were these candy wrappers in the bathroom. We thought, oh, great. She got in the candy. She ate, like, three pieces of candy. All right, we're going to, we made a plan. We're going to go in and talk with her. We walk in, and again, we're feeling like, we got this. We walk in, and Imogen is literally surrounded by candy wrappers on her bed. She had eaten over 20 pieces of candy before 6 a.m., right? And so all of my plans are out the window. And I'm like, what is going on? I mean, they were like stuffed in the, in the side table. And I just, and she looks up at me and you can just see, here's this little face that's totally busted, right? Totally afraid, but totally busted. She knows, she is guilty, right? There's no hiding it. You can't just kind of put it behind. I mean, they're everywhere. Candy wrappers everywhere. And she should have seen the look on her face. She was terrified, right? And maybe you can relate. And maybe you can maybe you have made a really big mistake in your life. And you got caught or you're afraid of getting caught and you just feel like I I don't want anyone to know. I'm so afraid. Right? Totally busted and you feel that shame start to creep in of uh-oh. Uh-oh, I better watch out. Someone's keeping score. And you're just waiting for the hammer to drop, right? You're just waiting for whatever the punishment was. So here's Imogen on this bed surrounded by candy wrappers, totally afraid, knowing that her parents are looking at her like, what have you done? What 
have you done? And there's no hiding it. And, and she looks at me, and she goes, Mom, are you mad? And everything in me wanted to go, yes, I'm mad. You just ate 20 pieces of candy before 6 a.m. What is the matter with you, right? I wanted to bring the hammer down. If I am honest, left to my own devices, I use the you better watch out mode of living. I use shame and punishment and fear when I'm left to my own devices. Kurt Thompson, who's, who's done a ton of research on shame and faith, he says this, shamed people shame people. Shamed people shame people. And when I am stuck in the cycle of feeling like I'm not good enough, I better watch out, I better get my act together, I better hide all of my mistakes, I react out of shame. Left to our own devices, we go to the you better watch out mentality. But this is why I am so grateful for the grace of God. I'm so grateful that I know Jesus and Jesus' grace and love towards me because it changes me, because I have been received that love, because I have been loved in my lowest moment. It's like a giant stop sign that says, how are you going to respond? You have a choice here that we should live differently because Jesus has lived among us and made himself known to us. And, and there's this question that I always ask parents. I tell parents to ask. It's like a yield sign. And it's a good one for all of us to say, do you want to make them pay for what they've done? Or do you want to help them learn from what they've done? Because the word discipline just means to teach. That's all it means. It doesn't mean to punish. It doesn't mean to deem people worthy of punishment or bring the hammer down. It means to teach. And as a parent, my first instinct is, I will make you pay. I will make you pay, right? Without Jesus, I would make my daughter pay. But because of Jesus, I was able to stop in that moment because I have been loved when I have made big mistakes in my life. And I have been treated with dignity and respect by God at my lowest moments. And so instead of saying, what is wrong with you? You ate 20 pieces of candy before 6 a.m. When she looks at me and she's got these little tears in her eyes, she goes, mom, are you mad? I was able to bend down, hug her, and say, well, I don't love the decision that you made this morning. And she just starts weeping and weeping. And she goes, Mom, I know. I just saw it. I couldn't help myself. And I just kept going back. And I just kept going back. And I was like, who can, you can relate to that, right? And suddenly we were able to have this conversation about self-control and, and why it's important. And I asked her, well, what do you think needs to happen here? How do, how do you think we should handle this? And here's, parents, here's a great tip. Your kids are much better at coming up with consequences for themselves than you are right? So she goes, we should get rid of all the Halloween candy, and I'm not going to have anything until Thanksgiving. I'm like, perfect, sounds great. Sounds good. Good plan. I didn't have a plan. She came up with a plan. She owned it, right? And, but in that moment, it was grace and truth together, right? Grace in, I love you even when you blew it, even when you made a huge mistake, and I don't love the decision you made. I still love you, and this is not the right choice, this is not the right way to go. We can live and respond in the world with grace and truth 
because of a God who loves us, a God who has treated us with grace and truth. Jesus has not come to condemn the world. He has come to save the world. He says, yes, sin is real, but it is not the most real thing about you. You are not the sum of your bad decisions. You are more than that. You are more than that. And I want more for you. That is the call of grace and truth. Not to watch out, but to keep watch. That your life should reflect this. So let me read that Ephesians passage one more time. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Because Jesus has come to town, our lives are changed. And so each week, we are ending our series with an opportunity for you to reflect. And we have snowflakes out in the lobby. And last week, you know, we asked you to write down what you hope for, not what you wish for, but what you hope for. And today, again, don't rush out. I know all of you just want to rush out, but don't rush out. Take a moment to, to respond. And the thing I want you to think about today is what does it look like to keep watch this Christmas season? And maybe that means that, there, that you need to respond to someone else with grace and truth. You know, maybe there is someone in your life that you've been impatient with or not bearing with love or not gentle or not humble towards. And there's someone, you need to write that name down to say, I need to remember that I need to treat this person differently because I have been treated this way by Jesus. Or maybe there is an issue in your life that you need to be reminded that God is not keeping score. That God is not you know, keeping score and, and waiting to get you. The hammer is not waiting to drop. That God looks at you and says, you are worthy of love and belonging, and I want more for you out of life. And maybe it's writing that issue down and remembering that Jesus has come to set you free. He's come to save you, to deliver you, not to condemn you. So as we respond and worship in just a moment, I be thinking about what what is it, God, that you want me to keep watch over in my life? Not to watch out, but to keep watch. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you that you have come, Jesus, to show us the fullness of who you are, to illuminate in our world the heart of God, that you are for us, that you love us, that you care about us. God, let us be people who are changed by your grace and truth. Let us be people who reflect your love in our lives out in the world, Lord. Let us live differently because of you. Teach us to keep watch, Lord, but help us to not be afraid in this Christmas season, but to know that you are always with us and you are for us. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.